Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her uge talt med Laurence Tybiana. Hun er en kvinde, som jeg i overvis har haft meget lyst til at tale med, fordi hun har en helt enestående historie og har begået en helt fantastisk bedrift. Det var nemlig Tybiana, som var chefrådgiver og bliver regnet for hovedarkitekten bag den største klimaforhandlingspolitiske triumf nogensinde, nemlig Paris-aftalen fra 2015. Men jeg har også været nysgerrig på Tybiana, fordi hun har en speciel historie. Hun er født og opvokset i Algeriet, dengang det var et departement under den franske stat. Hendes forældre var algeriske jøder, og blandt familiens gode venner var Albert Camus forældre. Så hun er vokset op i Algeriet som algerer og oplevede hele befrielseskrigen og kampen mod den franske kolonimagt. Og i 1962, da Algeriet var blevet en selvstændig stat, der rejste familien fra Algeriet til Paris. Der oplevede hun så i 1968 studenteroprøret, som blev en formativ oplevelse for hende. Hun valgte ikke bare at gå til venstre, men gå helt til venstre og blev en del af internationale kommunister. Og var i 70'erne stærkt engageret, venstreorienteret intellektuelt, ligesom rigtig mange af dem, der lytter til langsomme samtaler og abonnerer på Dagbladet Information. Og også nogle af dem, der skriver på Dagbladet Information. Så bevægede hun sig fra den radikale systemkritik over til at arbejde med selve maskinen. I 1997, da den socialistiske franske premierminister Lionel Jospin, han udnævnte hende til sin chef klimarådgiver, som han tog med til Kyoto, hvor hun var en af forhandlerne bag Kyoto-protokollen, som var helt afgørende for det, der senere skulle blive til Paris-aftalen. Og så efter 2009, hvor der var det store kopmøde i København, som ikke blev nogen kanon succes, der blev hun udpeget til chefen for det franske forhandlingshold frem mod 2015 i Paris. Good evening to you, Laurence Tubiana. I think you're with us from Paris, isn't that correct? Yes, absolutely. We've been following your work for many years, and you've produced some of the progress that has made us hopeful in a question that is very difficult. So thank you for your effort, and thank you for all your work. You've been very helpful to us here. Jeg har længe været nysgerrig på, hvad det betød for hende, at være født og opvokset i Algeriet og efterfølgende repræsentere Frankrig, at så at sige have Nord-Syd-konflikten, de rige lande versus de fattige lande, som en eksistentiel erfaring på det mest dramatiske sted i historien. Og jeg har været nysgerrig på, hvordan hun har holdt fast i de principper, der gjorde, at hun blev radikal venstreaktivist i 60'erne og 70'erne, og alligevel overgivet sig til en anden praksis, som klimaforandret der skabte rigtige resultater. Og et af de store spørgsmål, som vi jo tumler med her i langsomme samtaler, det er forbindelsen mellem idéer og aktivisme, de store analyser af verden og de rigtige forandringer af verden. Jeg tror faktisk ikke, jeg kan komme på nogen, der har bedre erfaringer og forudsætninger til at oplyse os om det, end netop Lorenz Tybjerna. God fornøjelse. I want to ask you first about growing up in Algeria, because you grew up in, in Laurent, in Algeria, which many, I think, know from the novel The Plague, by Albert Camus and others, maybe from the writing of Kamel Daoud, whom we also appreciate a lot here. I think for us in Denmark, this liberation war and this period in Algeria stands out as something quite extraordinary because there were so many intellectuals who were shaped by it, all the way from Bourdieu to Jacques Derrida, Camus, Althusser, as well. You grew up in that environment and, and left Algeria after the liberation. How did it shape your worldview and your politics? 
I was still, of course, young when when I left. But uh, my family was very close and friends with the Albert Camus family. And uh, they were from a generation of people really uh, very mobilized by the left wing. And in a way, with a big tension that Camus described very well, which is uh, the attachment of the place where they were living. And uh, my father was from uh, Jewish origin probably being in Algeria since I don't know how many thousands of years. So um, for him, just France was, of course, something very well known, but at the same time, very, very far away. It was not living in France. It has French nationality. And my mother was from a similar French and Greek origin. So it was strange because at the same time, the intense debates I was hearing when a child, when being a child, was about independence, was about what we have missed, how in a way to relate this sentiment of really belonging to a place and at the same time doesn't have any more legitimacy to be in there. And that was for me a very, uh, so on one side, a very important experience where in my first years and my first years in particular in political engagement, for me, it was almost impossible to to connect the two that Camus connects very well, which because I was probably too too young as a child, as uh, really um, supporting movement for independence, for example, uh, you know, the engagement at my age when I came to France and a little later was on Vietnam War. And uh, the idea that I have to do something out of the uh, living in a colony, in the French colony. And without feeling a very strong attachment to the French culture, because uh, again, Oran was a place where you have, of course, um, Spanish people, Arab people, co people coming from Turkey, from Italy, from many, many places, plus of course the different ethnic groups who are living in Algeria, which are quite a number. And so the French culture was, of course, because I was going to school there. But then it was something very strange for me to, to just land in Paris with a raining atmosphere and a such close society, which was, was for me was very, very close. So it was for me, uh, the, the first type of engagement was one, just to try to blur this past without being able to connect the two. Then to engage myself a lot in international action, I started my in a way, my activist career and my academic one working on North-South issues for obvious reasons. I didn't feel really particularly on one place, but on belonging to many places. And it was interesting to see that further on, I could finally recognize that there was, of course, history. When you are part of history, you are not, of course, always responsible of that history, but you have to understand it and then do something out of it. And um, and understand that there was many many missed opportunities in this uh, story of Algeria as an independent country because of course the incapacity of the French administration to understand how we could have created something different, uh, which you see in many other places. And in a way, uh, what what finally South Africa did a little bit better on trying to have this reconciliation process. And given the fact that there were so many nationalities and so many, again, uh, Algeria was a place where so many occupation went through, you know, from the 
Roman period to again the Ottoman Empire uh, and and on and on. So you know we could have have a, a like you know the Alexandria of uh, the 19th century, a place where people could could live with a more cosmopolitan vision. Of course, that was not as happened. Anyway, Algeria is a wonderful country. Um, of course, seeing what is happening there is sometimes a little sad because there is so good young people gifted with a, an enormous amount of resource in this country and deprived of many, many, many rights and many, many opportunities. So that's my positioning. But it was a fascinating period. Again, Althusser was a sort of very, very dominant intellectual figure and Bourdieu, because when I came back in France, I was uh, in a way with all my family very much involved with that group. So it was a strange uh, situation Try as a child to understand all this. And it has really shaped a lot my, my way of thinking. You've lived through some very significant events. First, the liberation won Algeria, and then 68 in Paris in France. And then quite early after that, the first collective global conference on environment was held in, in Stockholm. And you write about that in your wonderful book, Earth at Risk, Natural Capital and the Quest for Sustainability. And I'm curious, do you remember the conference in Stockholm from 72? Well, I was not there. Probably, I was. Uh, I was doing my studies at, at. I think I have started university just there. Sixty-eight for me was, of course, uh, the wonderful moment when you go out of the street. As a, I was still at high school, and really walking, uh, you know, without choosing the street of Paris just to be like everybody. So it was like a revelation of how you engage yourself and bodily engage you know, in the revolution. And then, of course, my engagement through really far left wing uh, organizations, uh, which typical of these years. But then Stockholm was, so Stockholm, I just saw that like from outside, but then reading and doing my academic work, you see that it was really a founding moment. And uh, that finally, uh, when you look at these 50 years, we have been through the evolution of the understanding of the relation of human and nature has been so deeply transformed. And I, I think I remember always this uh, extraordinary speech of Indira Gandhi. She was the only one head of state participating to Stockholm, which I think is very significant. I think, for example, the French sent, I don't know, even an ambassador or nobody very important. And she she really framed the discussion in absolutely clear terms about our responsibility, whoever we were. It was not only the classical North-South de debate we will see in the future uh, discussion about environment and development. So she had a very clear eye on the collective and individual responsibility in this relation with nature. And so, uh, yes, Stockholm from, but now, of course, I came to all these issues about globalization, environment, much later when I finished my studies and began to work at an academic agriculture. But I was obsessed by this North-South relation because of my childhood, of course. So you were engaged in activism very early on and you were engaged in critical thinking and the intellectual movements in, in Paris, movements that shaped us here in Copenhagen as well. I mean, the people that you mentioned, they are the classics here in university still. I'm too old to know, but I think they are. 
What was it like then when, when you were appointed by Lionel Jospin as his special advisor on, on environment, coming from this intellectual tradition and being part of really exercising power? It's it's always difficult to understand why you choose to do different things. Uh, what is clear is that um, being exposed to such political shock, like to see if, as a child this tension, this violence we, we have experienced even in front of my eyes. Uh, you see that you cannot be just a witness. You, you have to act. Uh, and in a way, this disassociation, uh, this um, difficulty to understand where I was in the French society, which I could not belong totally. Uh, the only solution is action. If you, you want to understand where you are, you act, because if not, you, you are not, not from a place. I was not from the French bourgeoisie. I was not, uh, my family was not poor either, but we were from nowhere in a way, even if this intellectual surrounding were still very, very present and my family was very engaged in that. So I think activism for me was, and, and my father and my mother were politically very engaged. I, I remember political conversation from, I, I was, uh, you imagine Algeria, uh, before the independence, it was everyday discussion at home, no, the ones who pros, uh, against, uh, etc. So anyway, it was probably my my education, which was around that. <clears throat> and then, yes, the action was a way to try to understand my my position in life. And why coming to Jospin uh, cabinet is because I felt that I, I was, of course, very, very interested in, in this global North-South discussion on how biodiversity and climate change were coming at global commons. And at the same time, there was still this opposition, this inequality, this problem of not addressing the basic needs of many people. And at that time, I had created an NGO, uh, which has disappeared since, which was really trying to provide intelligence and uh, on the impact on the um, European policies on third world countries, for example, to try to bring information to small farmers in Brazil to defend their interests better. So I was already in this action, from, but from the NGO point of view. And then with uh, Rio, I understood that there was something to do about the governance of global commons. And then I, I felt that it was uh, an opportunity um, I'm not risk adverse at all, so I, I I like just to go there and see what happens. Many times without knowing <laughs> where where it lands, and and that was a fantastic experience because uh, environment diplomacy at that time in France was almost inexistent. So it was quite in a way easier for me to try to build something. Well, there was no really uh, uh, not a lot of past dependency when you should have when when you are coming into a big administration. And uh, I had the privilege of uh, designing uh, the strategy and uh, uh, again, mostly, most of the time, again, the traditions of the, the French diplomacy on many, for example, a very important topic for me, which is uh, the rights and the recognition of indigenous people. The French constitution is very, very strict on that. And there is ideas that universal rights prevent you to recognize minorities. And that's where indigenous people is not a, a concept that is in a way, in a way even legal. And so for me, it was a big thing to, in a way, be disruptive at that moment. And uh, for example, in the Biodiversity Convention, 
uh, fight for the recognition, even from the French perspective and the global perspective of the indigenous right. And that was for me extraordinary as a learning experience, because, you know, these people who could not make their rights recognized, uh, even in the Human Rights Commission, could finally, in this place where we were discussing global commons, they could be recognized for their contribution to the biodiversity protection. And so on the issue, which is still my main intellectual question, how the different level of governance in, of activity and agency in a society makes that you are not always constrained. <laughs> that's funny because then that's the response to your first question. <laughs> you are not constrained to the particular place you are all allocated to. You can you can transgress, you can you can change that. And uh, this group of indigenous people could break the blockage they have, the obstacles they face in Brazil, in China, in well of course with all the difficulties or in Peru, in particular the recognition of their land rights because of the global common. And I found that totally, totally a foundational moment intellectually at, at such. I think the geopolitics of climate change has always been a little difficult for us here in Denmark to, to, to understand uh, the dynamics of it. And I think when it came to the COP here in Copenhagen in 2009, you know, there were these huge expectations and we were calling ourselves Copenhagen. And I think this was for many days the moment where we realized very late, but we're a small country, that it's no longer the Western world. We are no longer in charge of, of, of the world. And people were furious. I mean, even my friends on the left were furious that the Chinese, they wouldn't just come down to Obama when he arrived. How, how would you describe this COP in Copenhagen in 2009, the geopolitics of climate change at the time? Yeah, and I was very much involved. I was leading the French delegation at that time. And I wrote the note when I came back for the Kedorsi at that time, because I've been in and out then on the politics all the time. So um, when I went off the cabinet of Lionel Jospin after uh, he lost the elections, I went back to Sciospo and to the academia. And then I went back um, when Bernard Kouchner was the Minister of Foreign Affairs because he wanted me to operationalize a reform I had suggested when I was uh, before in, in the government. So I was there in Copenhagen and uh, the note I wrote back to the Quai when I went back was, I witnessed uh, the end of the old world and it was absolutely mm. physically meaningful. And you know, uh, and that's why it was very helpful for me to be there because I learned all these, I, I felt all these things uh, evolving and that has helped me enormously to, to in a way, uh, build the Paris Agreement logic. Uh, because of course, the Danish government start like always, starting the discussion with the US and then proposing to the broader audience, mostly developed countries, and then only came to the develop. So the classical West uh, philosophy, which was, understandable because normally when you have an agreement US in multilateral system, normally the deal is done or will be done. And that's not what has happened, of course. And that was that was a fantastic moment of political experience that, you know, the moment of the world has changed and you, you witness that. So it was pretty extraordinary. But of course, we think of the COP here in Copenhagen as a failure still. Some say, well, it laid some groundwork for what happened later in Paris. 
But obviously, Paris, where you were one of the leading architects, was a huge success and, and stands for many of us here as the most hopeful moment in our political lives. You know, global action and commitment and the level that we sort of had given up on at the time. What were the preparations that you made before the COP in Paris? First, I think, uh, as I said, uh, Copenhagen for me was a foundational moment where you understand uh, where, where not to go. Meaning, for example, you would not agree with the US team and there were excellent teams that they will write the text with you, for example, that you don't do that. So, uh, and Copenhagen, uh, it was a process. It has make, of course, mindset change, even if, of course, the result of the declaration was we would never have a global agreement, which was the, in a way, the, the text and incredibly interesting, a phrase that says, nothing should infringe on the national sovereignty. So for me, it was like, uh, wow, this is very important. And then the preparation, came out of this learning experience I had through all these years from Kyoto to, to Copenhagen and others I have been participating to. So coming to Paris, it was uh, first to understand where we were coming from. And in the environment governance, maybe, I don't know, different maybe from the, you know, the classical military type of deals and negotiation, because it's so multifaceted and there's so many actors involved you can play with many cars, which is not like the iron deal on, you know, on nuclear, where you have five or six actors playing together. It is more complex, but it offers many more windows of opportunities. So my preparation was, so learning from Copenhagen, you start the other way around, you, you begin to talk and to listen to developing countries first. So that was very evident after Copenhagen. And then you go step by step into making the mindset of what the, the expectation of the agreement uh, change over time. Because initially, of course, the idea was like, oh, it's an agreement for five years, and then we will renegotiate five years later. And, and that was my first obstacle, in particular with the Chinese uh, delegation, to make them accept that it will not be for five years. They will be totally dysfunctional to discuss five years. So we should have a a permanent agreement with mechanism of dynamic embedded in them. So that was the first thing. Don't, don't have a too low objective. Having agency and put the bar as high as possible, even if nobody can believe you will get there, which was, of course, a problem when, when France decided to run for, well, put that candidacy out there for, for the COP. And then there was multiple, multiple, of course, meetings, but with a very simple technique to listen and to make friends all over the year, preparing Paris. And that was very interesting. And uh, the second element, which I'm calling now the diplomacy of 360 degrees, was to understand that governments alone will not do it because they will negotiate between their interests. And you know, there was at that time, there was the idea, oh, the cops are useless. We should have a club of the major countries. That was a Bush storyline, for example, or even Obama was very in favor of these uh, um, major emitters meetings that will solve the problems. But when you have all the major emitting, uh, emitters in the same room, they agree not to do a lot because, of course, that's totally contrary to their interest. So it changed the physiognomy of the exercise if you have the other one who are really the losers and can have a voice. So 
The second element was just play with this broad thing and understand the governments themselves will not do enough. So we, we need to embark many, many players. And that's why I propose we incorporate the economic actors, the local communities, in particular the cities and the regions, and that we should add on top all the financial institutions that have to, in a way, realize or, or mean understand they were uh, levers and the uh, culprits as well of the global warming. And so this idea of having a, a sort of a, a view, a cross-cutting view that it was not only the agreement them itself that will operate, it was more that the agreement will be the framework, but then we have to manage the expectation across many, many, many sectors which are not governed by that uh, by that agreement, but that can refer to the agreement as a loading star, that's the place we should go. So I, I present the Paris Agreement as four pillars. One, which of course was the as the top-down, the binding one. You have to present your contribution, you have to revise it, uh, and you have to have a long-term strategy, et cetera, the carbon market, all, all what we have now. But on top of that, you have to, and to protect the national sovereignty element, you have to present your plans yourself. You have to decide what is your development pathway yourself. You are responsible, and then the enforcement mechanism at the end of the day is your national law, which I think we have to make progress on that. And that's, I think, the beautiful perspective of the improvement of the governance of Paris Agreement. And at the same time, I was trying to push the expectation from the economic actors that finally this transition to the zero carbon society is uh, unavoidable, and it will happen. So let's prepare that and not think that we can keep the old way. It doesn't work too well, <laughs> but it's there. And then the same for the financial institution. I saw a, a, an extraordinary dynamic on the mires of the main cities. And uh, there was, I think, more than 1,000 mires in Paris uh, gathered by Anne Hidalgo at that time. And there was a region as well. So this dynamic for me was very important. And the proof of the concept was when Trump decided to withdraw from the Paris Agreement, you have this fantastic movement of the state to stay, we are still in, which doesn't make sense from the legal international agreement point of view, but makes a lot of sense on the direction of travel. I know the COPs also produce some disappointments. I mean, it's almost a ritual with every COP that you come in with huge expectations and then we leave them a little disappointed. But right now we have another COP which is about the biodiversity. And it appears to me that looking at climate over the last couple of decades, it has been established in the public as something that we must act on. And of course, we want more NDCs and we want more commitments, but it's a problem that's been formulated and recognized. Something that's a little bit difficult for me to understand is that when it comes to biodiversity, which in a, in a kind of way, it's not as abstract as climate change is, and which is less politically polarizing. I mean, even conservatives, they like to conserve nature. You know, and yep. nature is something that we all care about. It's not as politically polarizing, but I think there is not the same attention paid to biodiversity. There's not the same amount of capital flowing towards bi biodiversity. How do you explain the split between these? They're intertwined, but they're also separate agendas. I think there are several reasons. One, of course, the the climate began to resonate, in particular because of the efforts of the Danish government to highlight this as a 
you know, the major threat and the major opportunity for head of state to save the planet. And you remember, I don't know if you were there, but you remember the the idea was we were the ones saving the planet and that the NGO, everybody was waiting for these leaders to save the planet, which they didn't do particularly well at that time. <laughs> so certainly political attention was not there. But it, it took time. And when I remember Kyoto Protocol in, in, in Japan, um, there was very few press there. It was very a niche thing. Uh, when, of course, in Copenhagen, thanks, of course, to the enormous communication policies that, in particular, Connie Heidegard uh, succeeded, it was really an effort of really putting the highlight. And I think that was very, very successful, even if the result was disappointing. The second element is it looks like less polarizing, but in reality, the perception of the conflict of interest was much, much, much closer to reality. Climate is still was still a broad thing. You didn't know exactly how much effort you have to do. But when you discuss about land use, agriculture reform, because agriculture is one of the major factors of biodiversity destruction, when you discuss about marine exploitation. That's why they, all the community around the ocean understood very well that they have to peg to um, the climate community just to be heard. You see that the conflict of interests are very, very real. And that for, in particular, developing countries, it was like the, this conservative element was in a way preventing the use of their natural resources in a way that showed the conflict between environment and development in a very crude way. And that's why uh, even if we have some success in the biodiversity convention through the Montreal Protocols, we, when it is about land use and the choice of relation with nature, you see that the conception between use and conservation are still very strong at headlogs. And that's why I think on one side, there is no political attention, but the second is the real economic interest feels that as a, a threat, immediate short-term threat, which they didn't perceive exactly uh, for climate. And finally, I think the scientific community was not unified, uh, which was of course a big value of IPCC. The strength thing of the story of IPCC was that the creation was uh, in a way, meant and supported by Margaret Thatcher, who was really, she was, I think, a believer in a way on, on climate change and uh, George Bush and uh, the father. And that was interesting because that was the instrument that would know, oblige government to look at the reality. But that has come very late on biodiversity, still with not the same resonance, but we created the IPBES, the equivalent of uh, IPCC, uh, uh, later on, and but it was a battle because the discipline were very, very disorganized because of this conservation uh, versus utilitarianism. It appears to me also that to a certain extent, biodiversity is more difficult because when you look at climate change, you say we can invest in, we can make electric vehicles. So we can just substitute the old engine with a new. So there is, if you look at Inflation Reduction Act, which we highly appreciate here, it's almost like you can keep on living the American way of life just with renewable energy. But it seems to me that biodiversity requires a more radical transformation of our relation to nature, that this really requires us to think differently about life. Do you agree on that? 
Yes, totally, and it is more concrete and short term. Uh, you have to change your agricultural practices, and in a way, you have to take such comparison on agriculture. Agriculture was a taboo discussion in the climate talks uh, until Paris, because of course the ag sector wanted to be protected from that discussion. And you have big uh, export countries like Argentina or New Zealand or even US didn't want to touch the farming sector. Uh, and then it came later on. But then on biodiversity, you have to confront that from day one, because you know that uh, the use of fertilizers or pesticide just ruining, and, and that's not new. Everybody knew that from the 60s or even earlier. So uh, you're totally right. I think the, the conflict of interest there and the fact that we cannot just live like with some nice technologies, which anyway, it's an illusion, but still is there on the climate talks, is more stringent. And uh, that's, that's why I think it's more, more really more difficult. You've highlighted in your books and, and through your conferences and what you've said, the the importance of, of youth energy and social activism in driving the fight against uh, climate change. You've always said they were important. You write about it in your major books. Right now here, we see a lot of uh, disillusioned and disappointed activists. We see people saying, well, we've pushed for some targets. We had the Paris Agreement. Now every cup is a disappointment. And we have some activists saying, well, we don't believe in the ruling classes anymore. We've seen we've seen like the uh, the interior minister in Germany, Robert Habeck. He said all the right things before he came to power, and now he's starting coal plants again in in Germany. When you see a little bit, it's not to just shame him, but we have activists here who stop believing that the system as we know them can produce what we need, and who are becoming who are discussing a lot whether they should be violent or what kind of, of civil disobedience they should use. What, what is your advice to the to the activists? I think they are in a complex situation where they came in politics through a very, very big issue. Uh, when you are against uh, Vietnam War, you have a very limited topic you want to win. Um, when you do 1968 is of course much broader, but that was at that time the difficulty for, if I remember these years, for the student movement or even the workers movement to try to find organization that could in a way crystallize and, and lead the, the, the fight uh, further. I think these young people now have a big issue because it just, they have a systemic problem, that's true. And they are right when they say the system cannot deliver that. Uh, they are fundamentally right. Now, what do you do with that? We have said that. And uh, if you don't want to go into violence, because of course you, you have not the power relation to, you know, it, violence is good for the powerful, not, not for the other ones. And uh, <clears throat> you always lose when you use violence against uh, stronger forces. And in particular, when, when you don't have armies and you don't have that. So you have ideas and you have energy. And so violence is not, not helping you. So on one side, I think it's a big challenge for them, but they can make changes in many, many ways. One, to look at back, and that's interesting, you refer to Stockholm, is that in 50 years, we have done a radical change of mentalities, even in the well of societies. Still, we are not there, but the 
the preparation of their own action has been there. So my, when I talk to my students and to younger people, including the one who are working with me now, and there was really a young generation coming in, I tell them, it's normal you're anxious. It's a fight, we don't know if we will win it, but I think the only solution is action. So you have to find what are the different modalities. There are many, many modalities. Uh, and it's not only uh, taking the streets. It's important to take the street because you have to count yourself. Uh, but the influence going to litigation, uh, not wanting to work in an oil and gas company, many elements, which in a way are, are strikingly important. When you see, for example, in the elite school of Paris or France, the young, the young graduates say they don't want to, to work in the agro-food industry or the oil and gas industry because it's really contrary to their values. And they are really in the center of what the elite French system was producing. You know, the very, very small group of people who are meant to uh, run the country, run the mega uh, companies, that's a shock they have delivered. And I think this is really important. So now what we can do for them is to comfort them, support them, uh, give them in a way the, the ticks and tricks you have to use mm -hmm. in public life, uh, but then say, we don't have any other solution action. And that's the only response that is valid, but you can, it's not only the streets, it's many places you have to identify where you, you have to go. Along with those concerns among activists is, is the more intellectual problem. You know, it's we can say that these are the problems of man's relation to nature. This economy of extraction, this is at the core of the capitalist society. This is a legacy of colonialism and this entire international financial system was designed by the rich countries. So you can make it into environment biodiversity. You can turn it into a question about the entire economy. And it seems like a very, very difficult battle to win. On the other hand, if you don't focus on the economy, it also seems like a, a very difficult battle to win. You have some big ideas yourself and you've been developing very radical ideas as a young person. You've been in power and made things happen. How should we balance this intellectual criticism of the entire system and then these targeted efforts that are so crucial? I think what one thing I'm telling my students all the time, you need to have the, the intellectual reflection to know where to go, even if you are in a, a very specific area of work, because if you don't have the concept, you are lost. You are just between influences. And for me, it was really important getting in the prime minister office and an advisor and special envoy, et cetera. Uh, if I haven't had the theory of it, I would have been lost after one, one week. When you know where to go, you know there is a time you have to be there and at the time it's not good. For that reason, I was thinking that I was it was good I did the diplomatic exercise in the French government for Paris, but I have to go out after. Because you, you feel that, but then that of course the learning of a life, which I think everyone has to do, but I think what is important is to understand you need this intellectual construction and then to identify the levers that make sense to at least go in the direction you would like to go. Of course, we could have a, a more disruptive thinking, uh, but it is very difficult to be operational with it. 
because again, we don't have the power. We don't have military. We don't have the guns. We, we don't have all these instruments that the system use when it is challenged. So I think the only one is, is really changing the mindset, campaigning, and taking all the lever from the judiciary in democratic countries to you know everything we can do. It could be through face group. It could be there is many doors that we have to open. The only thing is because your action will be limited necessarily because again, uh, well, even if you are the president of Germany or France, well, you cannot do that much in reality. But then if you know where to go, at least you you don't lose yourself into the orientation of action. So that's why I think a, a solid conceptual, in a way, thinking and framing and uh, architecture of your thinking is absolutely necessary. If not, you are anxious and disappointed and you don't understand the forces. When you understand the forces, you know why there is so much resistance because you, you have the intellectual tools to understand that. Well, one last question, uh, because time is running. There are so many things I'd like to ask you. But one last question is, we've been in this, not me personally, I'm only 48, but there's been this global concerted effort to avoid natural disaster for 50 years now. And in some areas, we've seen tremendous progress. And it's incredible to hear what even right-wing conservatives are saying about climate change now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's quite incredible. On the other hand, there's also the sense that we get a little pushback from the war in, in, in Ukraine in our energy market, and we already, we, we, you know, you subsidize gas stations again and, and make it easier for customers, cheaper for them to buy gas for their cars. I mean, we wanted the market to solve it, then the prices went up, and then we see government subsidies. What are, in your view, the most optimistic lessons learned over these last 50 years? The optimistic is that things are changing, they're just changing too slowly, really too slowly, but I see an acceleration of awareness and, and action in many places. When you see a shock like the invasion of Russia in Ukraine, and of course the confusion of the governments in, in front of that, I do think that at least what we have to do, I don't know, there is no solution, there is no one solution. But what we have to do is really to argue that we should not derail the direction of travel. We should really protect the most vulnerable from the shock of this enormous energy crisis. But we should not try to maintain the system as it is. We should just accelerate the development of the renewable energy and the energy efficiency, etc. But not really uh, pretend that we can, in France, we have thrown 40 billion in 2022 to subsidize fossil fuel, finally, what, what we have done. So we have to stop that. And uh, that's a very good campaign for, for the young people to say, stop that. Put the subsidies where it's needed, which is the poorest household, and in a way, uh, engage everybody to, to restrict the consumption as much as we can. And we know we let Russia manipulate our economy because of the gas dependency. So we let uh, an autocratic regime a criminal regime to detect our policies because we are not able to react. For me, just like I cannot accept that anyway. And that was very re rewarding to see all the young people in Germany saying that we should impose sanctions on, on Russia and we should understand that this dependence on fossil fuel is a dependence of autocratic regime. And the, the idea to change Russia by 
I don't know, Saudi Arabia or the Qatar, it, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. Well, Laurence Tubiana, thank you very much for your work and for everything you've achieved that gives direction to activists and for us here at the newspaper. And thank you for taking your time tonight. It was a pleasure talking to you. And me too. You have very nice and interesting and thoughtful questions. So many, many thanks. And keep in touch. I'm sure we will cross again. Bonne soirée à vous. Merci beaucoup. Det var min samtale med Laurence Tubiana som er den sidste langsomme samtale for i år. Vi har selv en fornemmelse af, at det har været en formidabel sæson, hvor vi har været rundt om idéer, forandringer i verden, aktivisme, engagement, analyser, fortællinger med alle mulige kloge folk, som har stillet sig til rådighed for vores fælles engagement her på Avisen og her i Langsomme Samtaleredaktionen. Vi holder en pause de næste uger og går først i gang igen tre uger ind i det nye år, og den pause bruger jeg på at forberede en masse nye samtaler, som vi kommer til at rulle med. Jeg kan løftsløret for, at den første samtale i det nye år bliver med en aktivist, venstreorienteret intellektuel, der har det sejeste navn nogensinde. Han hedder Paris Marx. Rigtig glædelig jul til jer. Godt nytår også, og tusind tak til Anne Pilgaard Petersen, der er blevet ved med at sætte mine stumper sammen til rigtig langsomme samtaler. Tusind tak for nu.